We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 208 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. If this is the first time you've listened to our little podcast, this is an Australian podcast where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion, all the sorts of things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party, but we talk about them. Changes in our society, what's happening to our civilization? Is it in danger? Is it going to progress or regress? What's going on in the world? So I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Paul, the Twelfth Man. Hi, everyone. Greetings, Earthlings. And Scott, the Velvet Glove, is not with us. He's sick, but uh, he's at home having a cup of hot chicken soup or something like that. Get well soon, Scott. But we've got uh, a little a special panel member uh, on the podcast, Loriana Lucioni. Welcome aboard, Loriana. Thank you, Travel. Hi. Great to have you here. So, Loriana is an expert in universal basic income. So, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, the pros and cons, what does it mean, and what's likely to happen or what could happen or what should we be thinking about when it comes to universal basic income. So, Loriana, would you like to state your credentials or what you've done <laughs> so that people know a little bit about you. Yes. So I'm currently uh, doing a PhD, um, so a doctorate at the University of Queensland, where I am exploring this concept of a universal basic income. And specifically, I'm looking at the cultural feasibility for its implementation here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, obviously it's a three, three and a half year long uh, project, years long project. And I'm organizing focus groups um, where I can have discussions with ordinary citizens and see um, the pros and cons, whether they're for, they're against, and the reasons they are motivating um, their conclusions uh, in regards of universal basic income. Um, so, if it's yeah, a three-year, if it's a three-year project, what what are you up to? Year one, two, or three? How far into it? <laughs> I are you? am half. I'm halfway through it. Right. Exactly halfway through it. Right. So at the fieldwork stage, okay. which means yes, I'm collecting data that will be analysis, and the last year of writing up the whole book. Right. Yes. Okay. I'll just. I've got a little bit of a spiel here that I looked up. Um, so you've completed degrees in psychology and sociology. Uh, You graduated with a Master of Science in European and Comparative Social Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and you had a dissertation which won the Titmus Prize. Congratulations. Yes. (laughs) And following a brief collaboration as independent postgraduate researcher with the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University, you're now investigating the cultural and political feasibility of uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income in Australia. So... Right. Well, I guess the first question is, what is a universal basic income? When people talk about that, what's it usually mean? So let's start with the acronym. So it's a UBI. And the U stands for universal and unconditional, the basic for basic and income. So going in the analysis of each specific word. So it's universal in the sense that 
everyone gets it in society. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're very wealthy individual or um, poor individual, everyone gets it. Children, um, people with disability, everyone. It's unconditional. So it does not, um, it, it is not conditional on your willingness to work or, um, to demonstrate, you know, that you want to contribute in other, in other ways. Um, it's basic. So the level that I, uh, taken in this, in my research and the modeling, the finance, the fiscal modeling that have been done, take the basic at a level where you can afford to pay your basic costs of living. So it's housing, food, transports, clothes. Uh, and this model in particular uh, with which I'm working, it's $409 a week uh, per adult. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what is meant by basic. Even does, that, though, does that line up with some sort of age pension or other sort of yes, benefit so, at the moment? Yes. So um, what happens is that the adult level is 409, while um, people who are receiving old age pensions, so 65 and over, and people with any sort of disability, they will receive 550 a week right. because there are higher costs associated with old age and with ah, forms of disability. Okay, right. And children, $105 a week. Right, okay. So somebody with a family of three kids will get more than... Exactly, yep. Right, yes. okay. Yes. Okay, so um, why is the concept universal? Because normally when we're thinking of social policy, we think of providing money to the poor and the needy, mm -hmm. but not to the super rich. Mm -hmm. So under a universal basic income, somebody earning a million dollars still gets this money. It gets tacked onto the top of their existing income and presumably they lose most of it in tax, I guess. Yes. But why not just say... Uh, an income for the poor. Why? Why is it? Mm -hmm. How come the concept is universal? Mm -hmm. So, and it's it's probably the the most uh, powerful idea. This is the universal bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so, most social policies or so, social security systems around the world, in developing countries in particular, they are called targeted. Uh, for this reason, so no, we do not want to give money to people who already have money. We should target it to people who need, need it the most, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, it is taken as the gold standard in terms of effectiveness uh, of, of help. So we are targeting, so we are effectively spending the money, like it's in an efficient mm. and effective way. Mm. However, there are lots of bureaucratic costs associated with that uh, because you have to, not only to identify the populations that are most in need, which presumes also that there is an idea of who is more in need than someone else and why. Mm -hmm. So there is already a value judgment there in creating these categories. Mm -hmm. um, then there are the costs in um, finding like, okay, who these people are and then mon monitoring the system, uh, sanctioning people who do not abide to the conditions right. associated. Yep. So um, on economic terms, what it's targeting social system, they're called effective, but they are quite wasteful um, in terms of uh, the economic cost of running this whole big bureaucratic machine. And the other problem on a, this is more of a sociological analysis, is that it creates divides in society. Um, mm -hmm. Because this is what you're doing. You are dividing societies in category of people and um, the state is deciding who is in need and who, who is not in need. Mm -hmm. um, so you create different categories of people where uh, people that do receive benefit um, 
you know, benefits are often associated with stigma, you know, and, and the conditionality as, as well of the, web, of the benefit system. Um, so you're kind of creating a um, lower class yeah. of people. And, yeah. um, and then you have other people that obviously say, oh, why should I pay to give money to the doll bludger and all this yes. uh, narrative and language of, I would, I would almost say hate sometimes that comes with it, with these divisions that are created through yeah. targeting society. Okay. So the first thing I think of, though, is that um, it must make it really expensive then if mm-hmm. you're going to give it to everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, well, Scott, our missing panellist, he often talks about, and you've just sort of mentioned the argument that, okay, it's more expensive in terms of the money going out, but then you don't need the whole bureaucracy managing it. So you actually mm-hmm. work out kind of even. Is, is, what, mm-hmm. is that what you kind of – is that what it – Studies show that you may as well just give it to everybody because the cost of of uh, filtering it mm-hmm. um, is the same anyway. So you may as well just give it to everybody. Is that how it pans out? Yes. Well, this is one of the stronger arguments presented by um, right-wing political uh, parties and activists of UBI. Um, so that they do see um, universal basic income as, a, as potentially – uh, removing the state and therefore saving money. So yes, this this idea of saving money through, for example, in Australia, the complete removal of Centrelink, um, it's it's very powerful. However, you know, you would save a um, couple of billion per year, not 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 much more than that. So even if the whole if the whole bureaucratic machine is removed, there are certainly savings, but not as much as. Uh, what it's needed to finance a universal basic income. Right, okay. But it's got the other benefits that you mentioned about not yes. about re- not having a division in our society. Yes, and, 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 and many, many more. Well, yes. like um, there have been many trials around the world and it's yeah. not it's not often t- talked about, but um, one of the oldest trials was in the 1970s, like in the 70s mm. there was a boom of these ideas, particularly in Canada. And in the States and in Australia as well, there was a small trial in 1973 in Melbourne. Um, so, yes, that's what mm. we can well, talk our, about. Our, our, our so, eyebrows are raising. <laughs> you can't see it on them. Yes. So what has been common, uh, like common finding among all these trials from the 70s till nowadays and the many that are running now, for example, in the Netherlands and in California and so on, is that there was um, a steep decrease um, in people admitted to hospitals, um, for mainly for reasons related to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were decreasing rates of depression, anxiety, stress. So there were, there were savings on the, in the public purse, in public health purse, because mm-hmm. uh, people are healthier. Mm-hmm. You know, once you remove this conditionality uh, and once, um, um, you remove, you know, the, this feeling of um, of division or of being of lesser of a human being, mm-hmm. etc. There are there are actually savings involved yeah. in, under this. When people don't have to worry about how they're going to feed themselves exactly. next week, exactly. then suddenly things get a lot easier. Yes, education mm. rates like uh, children were uh, more children were going to school, um, and. It's it's very interesting because also uh, child uh, childhood health improved because mm-hmm. um, a lot of people reported that because there are there are there is less stress in the households uh, mm. because 
you know, once you remove financial stress, which is a big one, mm. uh, there were also uh, more, let's say, harmonious relationship in the household. Mm. And this was very good for the health of children and, and so on. So it, it mm. has, it's like a chain of effects mm. um, for I, very I, simple measure, I can say. I seem to recall reading about a study, I think it was in America, which on the face of it went quite well, but... A false finding came out of it where they blamed um, a higher rate of divorce or something crazy mm. like that came yeah. out of it, which proved to be completely wrong when they reviewed uh, the topic later. Yes. So, you know, there's been a number of studies. Um, overall, have they been successful or not? Yes. And in this case that you're referring to, it's very, very interesting. And I think it was from the 70s, um, the 1970s, because it was, it was under the Nixon administration mm. with a family assistance plan and so on. Mm. Um, yes, the, the rate of divorce had scared uh, conservatives, obviously. Um, and it was actually also picked by <clears throat> feminists at that time. And this is why uh, a lot of feminists do, do support UBI because you also remove, um, because it's paid on individual and not household, hmm. uh, at, not at household level. So you do uh, give uh, people, not only women, but men as well, the opportunity to leave the relationship because um, some marriages really are standing just because for financial reasons. Yep. So once you give this money, yes, there, there might be a spike in divorce rates, even though no, this was not really registered, but uh, it did cause some speculation and spin, definitely. Because mm, Nixon yes. was quite well disposed to it and yes. he was heading right down that track and yes. then got diverted at the last minute. Was do you know, do you know why it, wasn't, it did not pass? I thought it was because of that divorce reason. No, 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 no it oh. wasn't. It was because the Democrats. It was actually it was it was rejected by the Democrats because they were uh, aiming at a higher rate. Ah. So they said, "No, we're gonna uh, knock it down now because so that we can push for a higher rate." Ah. And they just lost it in the end. There you go. So I didn't move forward. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah, people would be very surprised to know how close yes. Nixon was. So, and well, well okay. Other study or other attempts, Canada, I think you mentioned Netherlands, did you, or Finland? or, yes. or uh, Successful studies? And, and if they are, why aren't we doing it? Did they continue? Did they? Because I had the feeling that maybe it was Finland where they had it, tried it, and it stopped. And yes. they haven't, if it was a success, why didn't they keep going? So it's not, this is another thing, this is another very dangerous thing about trials. That once um, they go into the press and media, they get a lot of spin and then a lot of different interpretation. So the Finnish case, the Finnish case is a case in point. So it was not uh, interrupted. Uh, they so the um, uh, I remember the name of the institute is the Social Security Institute um, in Finland that run this trial, and they they were um, they agreed to have a two years trial 2017 and 2018 mm. they simply were not given the extension right but it's, they did complete that trial it was a two year trial and so they did uh, complete it and, and, and it was uh, determined to be successful yet they are still analyzing data <clears throat> so because it finished in december 2018 right so okay. we are expecting a full report um, in a couple of months there are some initial um 
findings that are very promising. Even though the Finnish case, then if you want, we can talk about it a little bit on the details because it was not truly a universal basic income. But even if it wasn't a truly universal basic income, um, they did record this like uh, increase in well-being and less stress. And they also recorded an increase in people... Um, actually looking for a job uh, or yes. uh, engaged in active economic activities, let's say that is. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So they okay. discovered the, the reverse because there is this, um, you know, this, one of the many scare talk about UBI is that people will be lazy and everyone will just sit on a couch binge watching TV all day. Yes. Well, this is not, no trial, not in the developing countries and developed countries. Mm, no trial is recorded. Is. Right. Okay. So that would be one of the sort of right wing arguments would be that people are so lazy that if you just give them money for nothing, they will sit and do nothing. Yeah. And I guess there will be people who will do that. Absolutely. But, yes. But they're probably already doing that and collecting yeah. an unemployment benefit anyway. Yes. Is, and is this one is, argument. You know, this it, it's so interesting because um, there will certainly be people that will leave the labor market, but for a variety of reasons. Mm. So um, the... Probably the truly um, universal basic income experiment that has been done so far is the Canadian one in the city of Dauphin, Dauphin in Manitoba. Uh, this was done in nine, between 1973 and 1975. And it was the truly uh, universal basic income because they gave it to the old town. So mm. they were able to look at community effects as mm. well. And what they recorded there, for example, that there was a drop in labor market participation, mm. but the majority of people that left the labor market was for either um, going back to education yes. because they needed to reskill, was for caring responsibilities, mm. was because they had some kind of disability uh, before that, mm. was because they went on open their own business. Mm. Uh, so the majority, it was, at, I think, a 13% drop in labor market participation. Mm. Uh, so one, three uh, percent. But the majority of these people is not... Were retraining and, exactly. and doing useful exactly. things. Yes, they weren't exactly. just sitting and watching no. the football all day. Yeah. And another thing that we can hopefully expand a little bit on later is that even if few people are content of living on this $409, mm. well... Isn't this like good in the sense, like if you look at the broader picture in trying to trans transitioning towards more sustainable society, less driven by production and consumption, production and consumption. Mm. So if you have people that are content on living with that, why not? Mm. You know, so. I mean, that's how we were for most of our history. Mm. It's only since, uh, you know, agriculture in sort of 10,000 years ago, prior to that when we were sort of foragers and hunters and that sort of thing, there seems to be the, the evidence is that we had a lot of downtime. I mean, yeah. you kill a nice big animal and sit around for a few days eating it and, yes. and people did sit around and have a lot more spare time. Even in agricultural times, uh, peasants and people like that we really had a lot of, a lot of days off where they mm -hmm. just could goof off and, and think about things or you know, do craft things or, or just have festivals exactly. or, or things. So mo for most of our history, we haven't been working as hard as we are yeah. since the and Industrial And we had more time to think. Yeah. I think you're talking about the men, aren't you now, Trevor, rather than the women. I imagine women in agricultural societies <laughs> always, always had something to do. Maybe, maybe. So the other example that came to mind as you were talking there was um, – on the Indian reservations in North America mm. where 
they get an income from the gambling casinos. So you've got communities who previously lacked money, but the casino gets built, the funds get distributed to everybody in the tribe, and they've then examined how the children and the families have coped in those communities who have suddenly been given a a nice set income from the tribe's casino interests, which is kind of like a universal basic income. And what they found was that people didn't sit in their trailers all day watching TV. They actually... did productive things and and improve their lives. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this is true in all cases. Like very interesting. Like um, I wouldn't talk too much about that because it's slightly different. So the, if you look at the trials done in developing countries, uh, so in Nab- Namibia, in Kenya, India, um, obviously you do have different effects, but largely what do you see is that, for example, there in developing countries uh, you have um, – more children attending school, um, more women that become independent, you know, and they, they try and, and, yeah, and become independent from the household in, yep. in that case, starting their own business activities and so on. Uh, so yes, you do see a lot of activation actually, even in mm. developing countries, same as in developed country. Mm. Um, so it's, it's because it's empowering. It's mm. empowering, you know, once, once, and this is why the universal is so important and sends such a strong message of solidarity. Because basically at that point, everyone is truly treated the same. Mm-hmm. Whether again, you've inherited billion or you have nothing, you're all the same, you know, and it's given a stable floor. It's mm. not a ceiling. So no one is stopping you from keeping working, accumulating and doing whatever, but it's a stable floor that is the same for everyone. Yeah. So we were talking earlier and you mentioned with these focus groups, you get six or seven ordinary Australians, mm-hmm. put them in a room and for 10 minutes, you give them information about universal basic income. Yeah. And then you um, sit back and watch for an hour as they discuss the pros and cons and you charge them with the task of of coming to an agreement as to whether Australia should have it or not. And then at the end of that, you play devil's advocate and and try and test their reasoning. So could you give us a little bit of a rundown of what sort of basic income you give to people Mm -hmm. in the 10-minute spiel Mm -hmm. that they then have to consider so we can yes. do that in our own heads yes so uh well basically it's just an introduction it's very similar to what i've said at the start mm-hmm. so i open by uh, describing what a universal basic income is so it's a it's a regular payment uh, in cash paid on individual not household basis um and it's and it's basic even though in the in the formal definition given by BN, which is the Basic Income Earth Network, uh, they do not set a floor. Like, they do not say, like, okay, it should be at least this amount. So they do mm. not set an amount. But the word basic tells a lot. So it should be basic in terms of meeting the basic needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and then I, I explain what is unconditional, what is universal, what is basic, and what is income. And, yeah, actually, I didn't... Uh, I didn't elaborate on income before. So um, the word income was chosen because universal basic income is um, is advocated in terms of a right. So this is why it's not called benefit. 
It's mm-hmm. called income because we do associate the word income with a right. So I work, therefore it's my right to receive an income. Mm-hmm. And the word income in universal basic income plays the same function. So you're receiving this money because it's your right mm-hmm. as citizen and permanent resident of that country. Uh, it, Italy, it should be on a global level. So um, universal basic income advocates, obviously they're trying to say, okay, we do still have nation states, so we should try a nation state level first. Mm. So this is why there is there are still there is still a category actually because you have to be a, either citizen or permanent resident in that country. Mm-hmm. But idealistic should be on a global scale. Yeah, but obviously it would also be different amount in different countries yes, because absolutely. of the cost of yes, living. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, indeed. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's an income and it's uh, based on a concept of right. Then I go through the costing. Um, so I, I based this study on uh, costing that has been done by, it's basically on two, um, main authors. Uh, one it's by Inglis Phillips and Stewart, but in the, at the Australian National University, they've done this costing, uh, of a universal basic income and it's just been published this year. So it's, it's very up to date. And the other one is a paper by Flomenhoft, uh, 2017, uh, where he proposed this model of financing, which is entirely based on um, economic rents of a country. So, you know, you think about oil, uh, minerals, land, right. water, all natural resources. So what mm-hmm. it's truly meant by the commons. Yes. And um, his modeling is very, very interesting. I do not have time to go through the details because there are like more than four, no, 20 categories of um, of commons mm-hmm. um but it does get a tell you the number so it's 289.3 billion per year as right. rents from the commons right so that's an, a sustainable annual amount available yes. if from our resources yes right correct. that could be just in you know Way into the future, forever, more or yes. less, right? Okay. Yep. And this is uh, also a um, conservative estimate. Conservative in the sense mm. that that this uh, model um, does not like it considers the total rents, but then it also takes um, what what you know what the government is already taking uh, as revenue. Yes. So it's not taking that into account. Uh, so it's much more than two hundred and eighty nine billion. So this is like this is extra on top, on top of the current yes. resource rents. Yeah. Uh, so with yeah. this model, you would not touch incomes, or uh, you you would not have uh, redistribution that scares a lot of people. It's yes. it's just based on the commons. Right. Okay, the commons has uh, yeah. everyone's like and so. Yep. Yep. And the other costing instead, uh, the um, the one done by the. Uh, Australian National University. Mm. So the gross cost of a UBI would be 264 billion. Mm-hmm. And they do a plan of financing it through a 37% flat uh, rate on all taxable income from the first dollar earned, mm-hmm. a 2% tax on wealth, mm-hmm. and uh, abolition of Medicare levy, tax free threshold, tax concessions, and loopholes. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a redesign, complete redesign of the tax benefit system. Okay, thirty seven percent flat rate, and the the income you get from the universal basic income mm-hmm. is also taxed. No, no, it is okay, not taxed. it's tax free. Right. Yes. Okay, it's the income on top of that that's yes. taxed, which would be at thirty seven percent, and the key one in there was the two percent. Um, wealth. Uh, wealth tax. Yes. So that starts on 
the first dollar of wealth that somebody has in terms of their assets? Yes, they do. Uh, they do keep it as an open question in the sense they do propose it, but they also they uh, do not define it too well because at the end of the day, it's a democratic and political question. Like mm. as a as a country. Uh, to define what is meant by wealth, what do we want to tax or not? Mm. But what it is true and undeniable is that wealth is not properly taxed in Australia. Mm -hmm. So even if um, we're not going for it because of UBI, but for any other kind of reform, we should look at wealth. Yeah, because Elizabeth Warren is sort of Notable at the moment, one of the Democratic candidates is proposing a wealth tax in the United States, mm. and hers is 2% above $50 million mm. and 3% above a billion. Yeah. And, um, and to me, that seems eminently saleable. Mm. Like, surely you can say to people, you know what, if you don't have $50 million, you don't have to worry about this. But if you've got $50 you've done really, really well out of our society. And you're actually using a lot of – you're relying on a lot of our civilization to maintain that. So just in a contractual sense, you know, the police, the court system, um, our defence force, all sorts of – all of that is actually – providing more for you than the person who has nothing. So, you know, has anyone ever done a study of what that would mean in Australia? Uh, No, because this is, uh, again, this is a 2019 uh, paper, so it's very recent. And I'm expecting that more people will elaborate on this. But the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax, Mm. has anybody looked at it in Australia? Ah, not that I know. you I, have? I have, <laughs> I have, Loriana. I'm the only one. So how much? How much would it be? Would About eight point seven billion. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, that's very. I, I'm not sure. So what's it, the share of this two percent in their funding? But yeah, so I've taken the Elizabeth Warren two percent on fifty million and yeah. above, and three percent on a billion. And recently, um, one of the magazines published Australia's top two fifty. Wealthiest yeah. families. So I just had that to go on and I came up with about $8.7 billion. Dear listener, you can go onto the Iron Fist Velvet Glove <laughs> website and you will see a link which shows the figures. Yeah. But that's enough, for example, to add um, dental care into Medicare, fully paid for, because I think dental care would only be about $5 billion. So, so, um, so there you go. Yes. In your spare time, and it's look. not even too <laughs> radical because you still you still talked about taxi wealth about fifty billion, fifty right? million dollars, million. Yeah, fifty so, million. So um, exactly, fifty million. Yeah. Now they do say um, so. The annual wealth tax is presumptive tax on deemed capital income hmm. on the simplified assumptions that assets will return about five percent a year in real term. Hmm. So by wealth, they encompass assets like home. But home net of debt, right? Uh, retirement okay. savings. Yep. They remove capital income gains and losses uh, from the income tax base to abo- avoid double counting. Right. So this is their the only description that they give about this two percent yep. tax on wealth. So, see, the other thing about that is somebody like Jeff Bezos, for example, owns all the shares in Amazon. Mm-hmm. He potentially has an income of zero because he just doesn't need money in his pocket to buy yeah. stuff. 
all of his wealth is in asset accumulation. So if you're just taxing income, a guy like that could pay zero tax conceivably. Even locally, somebody like Clive Palmer, for example, you know, he might just pay himself 100000 a year or something just as pocket money for buying hamburgers. But um, all of his wealth just stays in his shares and unless he sells them, he doesn't trigger a capital gain, pays no tax. So it just makes no sense that capital gain, when you're actually taxed more for your blood, sweat and tears, but somebody sitting on an asset gets taxed less. It, as Scott would say, well, actually, he doesn't like the idea, but one of his common <laughs> phrases is it makes no sense. But I'm saying it this time, Scott, it makes no sense. So. Yeah. yeah. Have you have you looked at a distribution of wealth in Australia? How is it? I've tried to look at no. things. Like I've tried to find what would put you in the top one percent, and I can't find the figure. But uh, yeah. Well, I know, like very broadly, so this is ABS figure mm. that twenty uh, percent. So the wealthiest twenty percent of the population owns sixty percent of national wealth. Right. And the bottom fifty percent owns eighteen percent of the national yeah, wealth. Yeah, I've seen different figures like yeah. that. Yeah, we've talked about that in the so, past. So and it's it's mm. um it's actually the wealth inequality is much higher than income inequality. Yes. That's going back to the Palmer example. Yeah. Yep. And in the past Australia's been uh doesn't have the inequality problems of the United States, mm. but we're heading in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. So so what else would you say in the ten minute spiel that you that yeah, you say to the group? I, I would obviously uh, say and remark that this modeling does not um does not include or mean that the welfare state as we mean it today will be gone. Uh so it also accounts for current costing in uh, public health, public education, and other welfare services. So this will stay. Um, and then so universal basic income is, is in addition. Mm-hmm. What will be removed is all the uh, conditional benefits. Right. Yep. Uh, and then, yeah, I end uh, the presentation. So it's because it's a very short introduction where I try to be as objective as possible. So not to mm-hmm. condition and influence people. So it's just really the basics and objective, like numbers and things. And then I talk a bit about the evidence from trials that we touched, um, upon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably one that we haven't talked and um, it's interesting to talk about is the Alaska Permanent Fund. Mm, yes. Uh, which, um, a lot of people. A lot of people talk about this as a UBI. It's it's not really a UBI because it's not basic. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a um, Alaskan receive between a thousand two thousand dollars per year, which is still all right, but it's not basic. It's like a, yeah. a, a top up. And also, we have to remember that Alaska is one of the most conservative states uh, in the states in the US. Is it? Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's a red state. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they fed this fund from nineteen seventy six. And they do see it as that they're right. Mm-hmm. And we here we go back to the Flominoff modeling that when you try and finance UBI through the commons and through returns on the commons, then you know that at that point no no one has really any rational argument to say why. Because yes. yep. in principle they are everyone's yes. sources. Yes. So you give people that information, maybe a bit extra that we hadn't touched mm-hmm. on. And they go away for an hour and and then come back. And how often have you done this? Oh. So five times. Right. Five times. Yep. Um, I want to do three, four more. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I guess, well, 
I would imagine that that wealth tax component as the means of paying for all of this is mm. the is the stickler? I don't know, but uh, I would imagine it is. It is, but not. I only had one group that um, that posed a lot on this two percent. Oh, okay. Um, but most, like the other four groups, they were they were happy with it. Right. And actually, they were even more radical in the sense that they were not happy with a thirty-seven percent flat tax rate. They wanted also a progressive taxation system. Uh, right. So right. even more radical. Right. Is, yeah. Right. So if the group comes back and says, yes, we want a universal basic income, we agree with what's being proposed, Mm -hmm. then you play devil's advocate and say, well, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? So I'm a group, Loriana, and I've just come back to you (laughs) saying, it's easy. We're going to go ahead and do it. What do you say to me? Yes. Well, uh, probably I would touch – in this depends depends on the group on the group dynamics and mm. um, and what do you think will work best? Uh, but I found that one of the arguments against that have uh, people thinking is around the work, like as we mean it today, is paid paid employment and the meaning uh, of work, like the meaning that gives to your life. Mm. Um, so a lot of people are against UBI, not even. They might even come and agree, yes, it's affordable. But then they're like, well, if you, if you remove work from people, like it's not just, it's not even the fact of being lazy, but the fact of having no meaning. Right. Like, yep. so it's, it's even, it's even yep. more, more depressing to look at it, like on both yes. psychological and uh, society level, you know, you yes. Have, so your counter argument would be that then people will have no meaning in their life yeah. if they're not working. Mm-hmm. For, for forty hours a week, mm. yeah. yeah, or yeah. or even yeah. less. But you know, it's yeah. it's more about because work. Um, I'm 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Gives, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against. Uh, you're playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I understand. Yes, yes. it gives yes. purpose and it structure your time, yeah. structure your life. It gives yeah. a structure. That's that's the point. You know. Yes. So yeah. if you introduce a BBI, oh, you know what? You do not have to work. Yeah. A lot of people will have no idea what to do with their spare time yes. because we are not a society used to have free time. Well, well, you hear stories of men who have worked hard all of their lives mm. and then they retire at 60 and they don't know what to do with exactly. themselves and their wives go crazy and it's like, I've got to get my husband out of the house. He's exactly. just driving me nuts. And sometimes they drop, drop dead two years later because yes. they've lost – well. This is, you know, stereotyping and generalising, but often a lot of guys like that um, haven't really maintained their friendships outside of work, so they don't have many friends outside of work or the interests for that matter. They sort of get consumed with work. But I guess the counter-argument is, it's quite easy to make, is that people will learn to actually (laughs) develop hobbies and interests and, and, and expand their social networks outside of work. Um, yes, but because we cannot, uh, we cannot really forecast this mm. behavior on a, on a massive scale, mm. um, or, you know, it goes hand in hand with the fear that everyone withdraws from the labor market all of a sudden, mm. you know, and then the economy collapses, like, okay, who is gonna, who is going, who is going to work in hospitals or like, uh, yeah. we won't have doctors, we won't have people collecting rubbish, yeah. like, or, yeah. what's going to happen yeah. to society? But, but the answer to that is, 
of course people will still want to work because they want the extra toys and experiences and benefits that extra money gives you. So they won't be happy with just a basic lifestyle. They'll, they'll A, they want the money and B, people do lots of jobs because they actually do enjoy them. So, but, but still, you know, the money component's obviously a big one where people have money to spend on, on stuff. And there is also, um, Another point, which is the one of um, the public ethos, uh, you know, and and this is often the answer that I give to people so afraid of having no one working in essential services. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that a majority of people that then decide to work in the public sector, um, they do do it for some kind of call, you know, for mm. some kind of ethical commitment that goes often beyond the monetary reward. Mm. Of, of that particular position. And it will also act like on a, on a macroeconomic uh, scale. Um, the effect is that labor will be rewarded for its true value in the sense that, for example, a uh, rubbish collector, because everyone gets universal basic income, so technically no one has to work for a living. So for all these um, essential services, People that do it will be paid more because at that point there will be true social value to what yes, you're doing. Yes. And so your pay will rise. While a lot of jobs that are what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs yes. that exist. Sorry, can I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're into full and frank language here. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so that have really no psychological, social meaning at all. Yes. Probably all these jobs will disappear. Yes. Okay? Because, yeah. People might, they, they already know and realize that I have no meaning, but they still do it because you need to put food on the table. Yes. Uh, so it will act like a kind of natural selection, you know, in the yeah. labor market yes. environment. And this also gives, opens up like word to new potential, like the potential to redesign really the, the entirety of the economic system. What do we produce? Why do we produce it? How do we consume? Why do we consume it? Yes. Uh, it gives people this freedom. It's, it's really the freedom to have the time to think through things. Yes. You know, and to plan and to look at information. And not everyone will do it, you know. For sure, there will always be people that will want to remain ignorant and live on the minimum. It's fine. Mm. But if it's a minority, I mm. think it's a risk we should take. Why not? Mm. I'll tell you a little secret, mm. Loriana. <laughs> I hope my boss isn't listening, but I've got a really unique job where I'm not required to be in an office yeah. 40 hours a week. I'm a sales rep, so I can do what I manage my time myself, and they don't care where I am or what I'm doing, provided the figures are there at the end of the month. Yeah. And, and they recognize that it's not really taking me 40 hours a week full on to do the job I'm doing. So I've got a bit of spare time to mm-hmm. contemplate the world and, and a very flexible diary. Yeah. I can tell you it's bloody marvellous. Like, <laughs> it's really, really yes. good. So uh, if, you know, if we can get everybody onto the sort of wicked I'm on at the moment, mm-hmm. um, it'd be great. Yes. God, I hope my boss didn't hear that. But anyway. <laughs> now, at the start of the evening, um, when we were talking before recording, I said to you, look, oh, I might start the interview by talking about various job losses happening in different industries because nationalists, well, Telstra's sacking 16,000 employees and NAB's uh, sacking 6,000 and Coles and Woolworths are currently getting rid of lots of people and 
the sort of argument that the jobs are disappearing, so um, we're just going to have to give this money to people anyway because the jobs are disappearing. And that was a an argument to sort of one of the a leading argument I thought for universal basic income. But you made a point that that if the foundations of the argument are not good, then you could end up with a poor result. So you were basically saying rather than arguing that, we should be arguing more on the human rights sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. You just want to expand on that? Yes. So, yeah, I can, I can easily play the devil's advocate on this one. Uh, universal basic income is often advocated in association with automation and increased digitization and, yeah, the future will have no jobs for human and robots care and all these things. The point is that, um, in my opinion, not only in my opinion, because if you look at the literature itself, it's very divided. Um, there is a high chance that because of the market economy in which we live, I, I honestly have no doubts that new jobs will be created. You know, again, whether they are the meaningless jobs or maybe just new jobs that we have no idea, you know, what it will mm-hmm. be. So um, I do not fear uh, so much that people will not have a job. Um, and I think that to um, advance and propose a UBI based on this reasoning, it's um, it's very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous because we do remain embedded in this um, economic fatalism. So as the production modality changes, so we as a, society, as a society adapt. Whether to me it's the opposite. It's not that the technology and the economy, the ways in which we produce change, therefore, what do we do with these people that we have no employment? Um, so it, it's the reverse. It's like universal basic income is paid on the basis of a right, which is a right to a share of limited resources, which in principle are all uh, are owned by everyone. Mm. You know, that's so. This is the the tenet, mm. and then if it also comes that we, are, I think we are living through. You know, it's it like a cusp. Like it could be the best time to live on Earth, maybe the last. Or um, and I think we are not getting the full potential of this. That why fear automation? Why fear automation? And you, you're probably aware of John Maynard Keynes. He was saying that by now we should be working 15 hours a week because mm. we have automated everything, you know, mm. and all, all One man with a harvester jobs. can can plough a field that exactly. would have taken 100 men five weeks to do. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So automation, yes, welcome. Why not? All mm. these tedious jobs. Why can't we, rep- if we have the ability, if we have the knowledge, if we have the technology, mm. why haven't we done it yet? You know, that's, that's the point. Mm. Um, and um, so these are, you know, the two things. It's not, I do not fear automation, but uh, if it's, if it keeps on being, uh, you know, if technology advances within the current um the current frame of thinking, uh, well, I do not see it as going, moving forward towards a better progressive society, you know. Mm. So I've, I've got a couple of links to some articles that you gave me, and I've, I'm just going to read a little bit of one of them, which is, uh, the neoliberal orthodoxy translates in policies, assumptions about social relations that are primarily in the service of economic functioning, rather than a search to satisfy human needs. 
the human subject is constructed as a striving individual whose unique wants and preferences can be met only through selling his or her labour as a commodity. Aristotle observed 2,500 years ago, wealth is evidently not the good we are seeking, for it is merely useful and for the sake of something else. And I think part of your whole um, ideology is trying to move a narrative from human beings as economic actors into human beings seeking happiness and meaning yeah. and enjoyment in life yeah. and stop treating people just as an economic unit. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And and I think it's part of a of a broader discourse. Um and and I think like a true rejuvenation of society cannot uh, happen fully if uh, a new vision like is created. You mm. know, so we can say for as long as we want that we are not happy whichever way with the current system, but if we are not proposing something strong, credible, you know, comprehensive and so on. And this idea of the nature of human being, which is socially constructed, is to me is at the heart of this narrative change. Mm. Um, so yes, if the human being keeps on being considered primarily through um, policies as a productive unit, how can the whole discourse change? If we are productive unit, a unit, how can you introduce a UBI? Mm. Like, why? Well, we are productive units, we need to produce. So how do we change the narrative? Mm. Because, you know, we've just had an election here in Australia and, you know, all the talk would be about um, GDP, you know, growth and jobs, um, strong economy, jobs, growth, mm -hmm. um, and I've, you know, we've talked in the past on the podcast about GDP as being just the most terrible number to be using yeah, as a measure yes. of of how a country is going, when we should be measuring, you know, all sorts of other far more important things. Yes. But there's, you know, with the one percent in charge of our media and mm. our politicians, that to try and turn around our society to start thinking outside of GDP and numbers and economic units into mm. something else, good luck. I don't know how, <laughs> I, I honestly, how's yeah, it no. going to happen? Uh, well, here's, here's, here's a theory I've got, which is that in Australia, we've had it too good for too long and we haven't had a crisis that calls people to question what the hell is going on. And I sort of feel... And we've still got the same two political parties that we've had for ages. Whereas in some countries in Europe and maybe in Italy or Spain where there's been massive youth unemployment and genuine hardship and people have actually looked at each other and gone, "This, we've, we're in crisis, we have a problem. And at that point, people might actually consider these sorts of ideas and have considered, you know, new political parties have sprung up. But mm. I have a theory that in Australia we've had it too good for too long and until there's a big shock, we're not going to shock mm. people into a different way of thinking. But mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah, no, that's like, I do agree on this fully. The problem is that crises are not enough. Um, and even there is this quote, I do not remember literally, but it's a quote from Milton Friedman in 1967, I think, that he said, 
you know, a, a crisis is never enough uh, to produce the changes that you want. You need to have built a narrative, a discourse before that crisis hit. Because the problem yes. is, like, look, yes, you, you've, you made a wonderful example about Europe. Um, we did feel indeed, and we are still feeling, we haven't, uh, we haven't really recovered from the 2007-2008 financial crisis uh, for what... Uh, statistics says, oh, employment rates are going up. Well, yes, but look at the quality. Is it employment or is it underemployment that is going up? Uh, again, looking at GDP rates, yes, but what GDP is made of? Mm. You know, the sale of weapons makes, brings up GDP. Yep. Um, what happened in, in Europe? Yes, there was a crisis. People started to think, but people were also angry and hungry. Yep. And then you get, uh, strong narratives, nationalist narratives that are very good at really like um, directioning this anger towards the usual scapegoats, yes. right? Uh, and so it's in diverting this social effervescence that was created, it's been really well, well done. Like they have diverted it. You know, now it's all, it's all about basically migrants, okay? Yes. And, and this is true across Europe. Yep. Across Europe. Yep. So, so uh, well, I'm not you'd sure be, if, you, if the shock will be enough. Well, you're familiar with um, Naomi um, Klein and the shock doctrine yes. then. Yeah. Yes. So, and Friedman, basically with his Chicago economics, when there was a, a shock in a country, whether it was through economic um, circumstances or environmental, mm-hmm. Um, you know, these sort of one percenters would pounce and while the, the public was still in shock and unable to deal with things, they would institute all of these neoliberal changes. Yes. So, um, so I guess you need a shock, but then you also need a groundswell of understanding from the public. That, you need the that, story. That yes. there's a left wing option, um, yes. that, yeah, and nobody's telling that that but, I can see. You know, this is why neoliberalism has been so successful. Mm-hmm. And neoliberalism, we, we have to remember that it's been going on, you know, like Hayek in 1930s. Um, and they, in between 1930 and 1933 to 1934, I don't remember the, the, the exact date. And 1975, you know, when the oil crisis and that yep. is where the full blown then neoliberalism came yep. into effect. So you have these 40 years where uh, neoliberal thinkers opened more than four, 400 think tanks just in the States. Yes. Okay. Yep. So, and so this is why you need this spread of ideas and that you need them to, um, you know, to really uh, trickle yeah. down. I don't want to use this word, but to yeah. trickle down, you know, yeah. in society. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm just going to grab a book. Hang on. Yeah. Here in Australia, we had some uh, neoliberal think tanks. I don't know if you've ever heard of the H.R. Nichols Society, no, which was involved in industrial relations, the Samuel Griffith Society, which was involved with the Constitution, mm-hmm. the Benelong Society and the Lavoisier Group. Now, these were right-wing think tanks in Australia mm-hmm. that were um, constructed along similar lines to those think tanks you're yes. talking about. The thing about them was that they never had many members. Ultimately, they might have had only 200, 300 members, Mm -hmm. but they were incredibly noisy and they agitated. The other thing about it is 
We could develop, you know, five left-wing think tanks with their own little niche like that. Mm-hmm. But the 1% in charge of the media and everything else isn't going to give them a run, whereas those guys had an ideology and an agenda that, um, you know, the Murdoch press, for example, loved so they'd get a good run. So that's part of the difficulty mm-hmm. is that the narrative that we would put, well, a left-wing narrative wouldn't appeal to the people in charge of allowing the narrative to no, come no, out. No, no, it, it won't. Yeah. It won't. But why don't we use this so that this mm. number, the 1%, mm. yeah, it's very powerful, very influential 1%, mm. but it's 1%. Mm. And in thinking, you know, when I mentioned before, uh, other many uh, possibilities of these technological advances, mm. some of them are scary, personally, like I do not, um, I do find this all surveillance capitalism pretty scary. But um, also the possibility that the internet has given us in terms of um, reaching, you know, reaching people that you couldn't reach before. Um, I do see potential in that, like mm. parallel to the, the, you know, the big media uh, names and, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Um, in theory, alternative news mm. sources can be distributed to people. Yeah, yeah in theory. But you also mm. do, at the end of the day, you mm-hmm. still need that kind of um, organization. I mean, yeah. it, it, and, and this is why UBI is a bit problematic because it's a, it's pretty divided itself as a movement. Yes. And this is common to the, to the left in general. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so explain that again. So there's, there's right-wing and left-wing proponents of UBI yes. and they don't want to talk to each other. Yes. It's not that, like, we do talk to each other, but the problem is that, so imagine a country says, okay, yes, we want a universal basic income, okay? If you do have, um, say, let's say more progressive advocates and, or, and more conservative um, advocates for UBI sitting at a table and deciding, okay, how, like, the proper design of the policy and also the other policies that will need to be implemented with it because it's not a silver bullet. You do need other policies to mm. work in a corollary with that. What will happen is that you will have to reach compromises, Right. Mm-hmm. And if if you do have, um, again, very conservative av- advocate of UBI that they do want a UBI, but they also want a complete removal of the welfare state. Yep. Well, that's an impasse to me. Like either right. either you have a UBI plus public health, public education and right. other services. Yep. Or... Or nothing. Okay, so they want to get rid of free hospitals and free schools yes, as well. Yes, right, yeah, okay. Yes. They want to get the whole hog. Yeah. Yeah. And you have like uh, Moraine, um, even Fr- Friedman himself. Friedman himself was uh, he, he was the one pro- who proposed to Nixon the negative income tax. The right. negative income tax is in effect like on um, distribution level, so on in money terms, as the same exact cost as a universal basic income. Right, okay? right, yep. So yep. uh, this is the negative income, income tax proposed in the 70s by Friedman and almost imp- implemented by Nixon. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There we go. So, well, Loriana, what haven't we covered? Is there anything essential that we would have missed out? Any little tidbit that you normally um, let out? Or So you're going to no. – do you need participants for your study? How do you find these people? <laughs> uh, I, I do, but I cannot yeah. choose them. <laughs> yes, so it's going to be so, random in some sense. Yes, yeah. and, and unfortunately I'm yep. using one of the biggest – 
monopolies in the world. So I'm using Facebook. Um, right. So it's a Facebook advertisement. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, people that click on it register. So I'm not. Uh, I'm not handling. I, I'm just. Obviously, there is the screening process, and yeah. then there is a random selection. So right. I'm not choosing. I cannot yes. because it's it's a blind random selection. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you'll be doing another half a dozen or something of these sort of um, three disco- or four, three or right. four. Right. And then you will be writing up your results mm-hmm. of that. Yes. And and do you start with a proposition in your head, and then you're trying to see whether that's reflected in the practical study is that right or not no i do not have i do not have an answer like uh, i like to think so basically the question is um is universal basic income culturally feasible in australia okay yes. and i would like to be yes it is right. uh, but clearly i do not know and i do not know yet right and it also must be said that this focus groups that i'm doing they are not representative Yep. You know, they cannot be a representative yes. because I'm doing a qualitative study. Right. I'm, I'm really looking into the underlying values and reasoning that inform yeah. how people talk about this yep. and so on. So would you discern any sort of significant differences between Australians and Italians mm. in this regard? Like, Indeed. You, yeah, yes. okay. Tell us some yeah. of that. Well, in Italy there is um, okay. Not sure if you know, but Italy is the only um, nation state in Europe that does not have uh, an unemployment benefit. Uh, so basically, in Italy, if you are unemployed and you have no one that can help you, that's it. There is no such You're on thing. The street. As a, there is no such thing as an employment assistance in Italy. It's the only country in Europe that doesn't have it. Because Italy, well, you have, you also have to look at the history of Italy, but if you think that the value of work and dignity of labor is strong in Australia, in Italy it's even worse. So mm-hmm. there is this association with really with labor equals dignity equals you deserve something. It's even stronger than here. Mm-hmm. So there is there is some talk of a UBI. Right. Of course, you do have some groups of people discussing it, right. a few academics writing about it. But in real terms, no, there is it's not even... Okay, but would there be a corresponding um, difference where the family unit is bigger and more important than mm-hmm. Italy? So the family would, would take in and... and Look after the unemployed youth, yes. and, and the nonna and the grandparents are living at home with the family. So yes. it's the family's responsibility to look after non, open inverted commas, non-performing um, yes. sort of family members. Yes, and oh. this is okay. So all social security systems in the world they are built on the culture of yes. the place and the history of yep. the place, and. So Italy is what is described as a corporatist welfare state, a familiar kind f- uh, based on this familiarity uh, principle and on the principle of the corporate, not, not, in, not uh, in the sense of the corporate like the big companies, yeah. uh, but based on the old concept of the guilds. Yeah. So uh, you have a very different system of protections. So the first unit of protection is the family mm. and in terms of the labor market. This is why even the labor market is so divided like and each industry has their all like set of rules and taxation and benefit system. Uh so it's 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 a, it's different. It's different social security system and you are absolutely right. Yes, it 
basically historically comes from um, the concept of the family, of the extended family as the primary nucleus of mm. security, of the, the core of security for someone. And then secondary, there is the state. But primarily should be your family that supports you. Right. Yeah. So on that basis, Australia would be more likely to agree to it sort of culturally yeah. because of our existing narratives than Italy. Yeah. Right. So what about Japan? We often talk about Japan because 12 Man spent a bit of time in Japan and and they've got a very distinctive characteristic about them. Do do grandparents live with the family in, in Japan, 12 Man? Still, still more than they do here in Australia. But, of course, um, the Japanese work culture sort of uh, in the cities demands people to to give a lot of their themselves and their their time and their personal loyalty to the company. Yes. So there is a trend of people um, putting their aged parents into nursing homes. Right. I don't think it's as uh, entrenched as it is here, but certainly they are going that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, my mother lives with us. She's in her 80s, quite elderly. I take it to the shops, you know. Do shopping. We go to this coffee shop, and um, the guy there is a Fijian Indian guy, and um, he's quite fond of my mother. And um, he said to me the other day, he said, "What what nationality are you? And are you Italian or something?" I said, "No, I'm, I'm Aussie." Because <laughs> he said, "Because you know your mother lives with you, so I just assumed you must have been something else." Because there's nobody in the suburb whose, whose mother lives with them still. So there is that perception yeah. too, because yeah. I, I work with a lot of people from other countries, and there is the perception that Australians are a little bit heartless because you know we farm out our parents uh, as yeah. soon as we get the chance, yeah, and we don't take care of them as uh, we're supposed mm. to. Yeah. Like a, a lot of my, the people I work with are from Latin America. Uh, and yes. I think it's still quite strong in Latin America yes. to take care of the parents. Yes. Yeah. And it's even stronger than in Italy. So Italy, you know, it's a bit of then the stereotype, but um, society has been changing a lot very fast. So if you look at the past 20, 30 years, a lot of people, like like old, old people end up in nursing home and... Mm. and mm. So, so maybe our cultural situation is such, your conclusion will be that we might be more open to it than... A culture with a very strong sort of yeah. extended family unit sort of um, philosophy. Yeah. Who knows? Mm. And and the other reason for Australia is that uh, you know Australia makes a very good case for whoever says that a universal basic income cannot be afforded mm. uh, because Australia is a very wealthy country. So yes. Apparently the wealthiest country in yes, the world. Exactly. Uh, Resources so, are very, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, uh, well, no. So certainly like to start – uh, with with a study of this kind, because this, this is the first uh, study uh, of UBI done in this way, um, and to start in Australia is like it's it's in a way kind of easier because mm. you know that the economic question can be answered straight yeah. away. But you know, again, that prevailing narrative, like we've had this thing with um, natural gas in this country, where you know our our opposition leader in Queensland just said, you know, I promise a 10-year freeze on on royalties mm. for any mining operation in Queensland. And at the moment, we're way below the the international standards on on resource rent. Yes. But nobody, nobody 
got up in arms and said, what the, la- the hell are you talking the about? The Labor Party tried to start that conversation a few years ago, you will recall, yeah. with the uh, resource rent tax. Yeah, well, well, and well, it, was, it was shouted down um, by very wealthy people who, who embarked on a, pub, a, a campaign to, you know, to defeat it, mm-hmm. who actually enlisted working people to their side, you know, sort of persuaded them that it was actually not in their interests to support yeah, it. Yeah, Rose Han- Hancock. Mm. Um, not, and not others. Rose. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got a long way to go to yeah. convince there's such a strong misunderstanding of how the world should be working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and ironically. People are brainwashed into mm. some stupid ideas. Yeah. A little bit ironically, mm. you know, the, the official name of this country is the Commonwealth mm. of Australia. Mm. Yeah. And yet where's the the common ownership of the wealth? You yeah. Know? We've it's given away to yeah. multinationals at bargain prices, really, isn't yeah. it? It's interesting how yeah, and just different countries will have a different um, prevailing narrative or bias, as you say. So, you know, the rest of the world looks at the United States and their gun culture and mm. says, what the hell are you thinking of? <laughs> Yet so many otherwise normal Americans would go, well, of course, it's my right to have a gun. And I say here in Australia, we have a thing with um, government funding of private religious schools that, that we do to an extent that nobody else in the world does. And I say to people, this is the equivalent of gun culture where yeah. the rest of the world is looking at us and going, are you mad? What are you doing paying all that money to yeah. those groups? Mm. Other countries don't do that. And, and the Conservative we, government have sold the line mm. that it's the parents' right to choose the, the school that suits their uh, their needs and yeah. their um, cultural preferences. Yeah, but what's considered normal can vary greatly yeah, but between why, countries. Why, why should that be mm. financed through public money? Like, what yeah. It, yeah. Well, they yeah, say absolutely. they pay taxes, yeah. so they're... And, you know, but, entitled to have those taxes funneled into their choice of school rather than into public schooling. But but one thing we've also discussed in recent times is how, you know, when it's come to some religious matters here, one fanatical person who's just badgered the government can get changes made that then last for 50 years. So fanatically motivated people can get things done if they're at the right time in history. So I guess uh, it's possible the other way around for, say, universal basic income. If a a UBI fanatic arrives on the scene and sells it, who knows? But I I don't know. Like, it's it's so so complex. And talking about schools and religion, because, you know, obviously in Italy we have the Vatican, so Mm. uh, we do – yeah, we we do um, um, (laughs) – Does the Italian government fund Catholic schools? No, because, okay, the way the Italian system works is that um, you do have public school, like private schools are, they do exist, but they are frowned upon. Like, okay, uh, they're not educating 50% of high school students like no, they are No, but the, here. the point is that in, um, in education you do have, so for example, when you go, it's up to 14, 15, that you mm-hmm. have, um, you can choose to have two hours of religious teaching every week, but right. you can choose. Yep. But the other problem that raised um, a lot of debate a few years back is that we still have in most classes the cross. Okay? Mm. And what happened is that... Uh, in the actual classroom, you the mean? Classroom. So a cross on the wall? Yes, mm. a cross mm. on the wall. In a government uh, school? Yes. Right. Uh, what happens is that obviously um, children from different cultures, from different religions, they started, you know, to to talk about it and to raise 
this as an issue. Like, what can we remove it? Because it's it's disrespectful to people who do not believe or have other religious beliefs. Like, hmm. if um, and it's anachronistic, isn't it? In, it is. in the modern world, yes. where not everybody, even in a country exactly. like Italy, exactly. really believes in God exactly. anymore. And um, the cross is still there, basically, yeah. because it's uh, it's been associated. It's associated so much with the Culture, culture and it's um, the cross is there so yeah yeah it's very hard to turn it these social norms are like the titanic or well mm. like a big you know oil tanker they're incredibly difficult to turn around quickly it's mm. there's such an inertia on them and and once a group has got a special benefit taking it off them is so much more difficult yes. as we mm. saw in the recent election with dividend imputation credits mm. for um, people with no other income, you know, once people have got it, they'll latch onto it and they'll kick up a stink about losing it. But the other people who will potentially benefit won't won't be as noisy. So on a universal basic income, I can see people of the wealthier class being um, vehement in their opposition to the idea, but the actual lower classes who will benefit the most being relatively silent mm. and not saying anything yes. because it, the, the other people will be because the narrative has been controlled yeah. by other and, other interests. yeah and it's and when you're taking something off like those yeah. people will be paying some more tax mm. the 37 percent flat rate might mean more tax for some of them and they'll go well I'm going to scream like a banshee and then the mm. other people who will benefit um, won't so yeah. it's a very difficult thing so no again mm. and I think that unfortunately it mostly revolves around this this capacity of whatever the uh, vision narrative uh, to to construct a solid base you know and mm. people because people have to believe not only in change but also in the prospects that this change will lead to mm. in order for them hopefully to to take yeah. a stand you know yeah. and if you just propose okay you know let's redistribute these and let's do that yes but where where are we adding to mm. where are we adding towards mm. Um, so yeah, well, I have no idea. I, I wish mm. I had a, a, I had a clearer path yes. to take. Mm. Um, I know that it needs to happen grassroots cannot be. Mm. Do you envisage that it would lead to a more just and more fair society? Mm. Yes, that's, that's the dream. Uh. <laughs> but, but don't you think in, in the long run, those who control, the economy and control the access and flow of money mm-hmm. uh, would manipulate it and there would be some sort of inflationary mm-hmm. effect. effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people on universal basic income would constitute the lower classes mm-hmm. and those who are born into a more privileged background and have more access to employment opportunities, what employment opportunities as still exist, mm-hmm would still constitute the upper classes mm-hmm. and would still control the uh, the narrative, really. Yeah, but, but, you know, if people have got a basic income and they can choose to how they use their time, like the option of just having less stuff but having more time is going to be really appealing to people if it's sort of, it's if they're really allowed to think to about that. What people might actually yeah. desire, though, yeah. isn't it? yeah. Well, you know, you, you do not need a majority of people um, to create big change. And uh, now, you know, we're talking 200, 300 people. But mm. the point of UBI is that it, because it gives people time and freedom, why 
I mean, what's the reason why people wouldn't start to become more politically active, for example? Hmm. You know, and to be so it really empowers people to be more active so that if something like what you've mentioned happened, well, okay, now look, we have the means and we have the time mm. and, you know, we can either unite or we can, you know, whatever is the, the, the idea of the day and how to tackle it, yes. the, the whatever mm. issue. Yeah. Um, will it happen? Well, no one knows. And it's what about unforeseen consequences? For mm. example, if um, the government says, well, you know, all you people have all this free time now. You should be should be doing volunteer work. Mm-hmm. In which case, the government doesn't have to pay people to do the work that could be done by yes. the. But you know, the, the whole the whole point pay. of it is it comes without with no strings attached. Yes. The whole it, point of the universal basic income is there is no attached string. Oh yes, so you know the government could uh, construct a narrative of guilt or obligation. Yes, which they would say no, no, no. It's not attached to the UBI. It's just part of who we are as a society. You know, people help each other. Or something. Yes, but uh, also you know narratives. Um, Narratives, they are not simply top-down. You need to have a base as well. So it's it's bottom-up and then you have, need to have the right people top-down to, to, to influence it. And the so what you, what you mentioned, it's already existing in a proposal. It's called the participation income, which works same way as a UBI, but the only condition is that you do some kind of activity, voluntary activity that you participate in some way. And um, uh, late British, um, was he a sociologist or a political scientist? I don't remember, Atkinson anyway. Uh, he had this idea in 1996 and it's called participation income. And it's still like some, there are still some advocates around, particularly in the UK and some UBI advocates also, they do see it as, well, better than nothing. Uh, but yeah, to me, no, it doesn't work because the unconditionality is the strongest. The unconditionality mm. and the universality are the strongest messages. Mm. And then, again, we, you know, we could talk for days what might happen, what might not happen. And unfortunately, if there is not one brave country in the world that tries it, how can we, how mm. can we study this? How can we observe this? And you can mm. just do a bit of guesswork and do you think countries are are afraid that if they tried something as radical as that they would be somehow um, used by other countries that are not trying it in some mm. way and, yes. and maybe find themselves at a disadvantage yes yes uh, there is an uh, interesting because this is something that is not touched a lot in the literature but it's uh, it's a topic that came up in all the focus groups that I've had um, because uh, when we talk about migration, for example, if a country does implement universal basic income, it might act like a pull factor. Uh, so this is why it's in all the proposals, it's very clear that it's citizens and permanent residents. Because in order, you know, most countries, in order to become a permanent resident, it includes a number of years yeah. of work and other source of contribution. Yeah. Um, so yes, the the risk the, the risk uh, on an increased influx influx. Even though to me the main risk is not the increase in influx, is that 
the the high chances of exploitation for these newly arrived migrants because if you have uh, a system where there is a universal basic income and no one works for minimum wages then who is going to do the minimum wages job, jobs mm. migrant new mi- migrants that do not have yes. basic income yes yeah. so this is the biggest risk um and this is the only risk that i see like on a on a in a global way. Well, if you look at the at market forces, for example, and if you do start to tax very heavily corporations, for example, yes, they will relocate, but they already do this. Mm. So, uh, again, do we want unethical uh, companies? This mm. is why it gives you really time to decide this, yeah. what do we want as a country? What yeah. do we? What kind of employers? Uh, what kind of industry? What kind of? This is why I said, what the hell are we doing letting Amazon into this country? Mm, Because they will just cause the shutting down of a lot of mum and dad operations and they're going to shift the profits overseas. So at the moment, we only get tax from uh, banks and some resource companies via resource rents who can't shift their money overseas, but anyone who can already does. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So... That can only be tackled by um, other other kind of legislations and regulations on a global mm. scale in the financial mm. market and look at tax havens. And, mm. uh, well, Loriana, we might wrap it up there and at another time we might investigate the funding model that looked at the resource yeah, uh, yeah. from the commons. That sounds an interesting topic as yeah. to how much we could get from our, our resources if – we were properly yes. extracting what we could. So that might be a topic for another time. Absolutely. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with your um, research. Thank Let you. us know if you have <laughs> any um, breakthrough or anything newsworthy. Uh, it's an open invitation to come on whenever. I will. And good luck into the future. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks. Mm, thanks yeah. very much. Thank you. All right, uh, dear listener, we'll be back again next week with our usual panel talking about the events of the day and... Until then, thank you very much. Bye for now. Bye all. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty australian to i think ten dollars and various ones in between it's really what do you think it's worth is it worth a cup of coffee uh is it worth more than that less than that whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, 
contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.